Welcome to another episode of Chandelier Chats. I'm your host, Rochelle LaCour. Today, we have a really amazing guest. Her name is Dr. Mandy Swindon. She is a naturopathic doctor. And today we are going to be talking about the differences between naturopathic medicine and conventional medicine. We're also going to be chatting about female hormones and hormone testing and all the goodies. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Mandy Swindon. Welcome to the show. How are you? Thanks. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited to have you here. So a little context for all of our listeners and viewers. When I lived in the western part of Canada, out in Calgary, Alberta, a friend of mine introduced me to the wonderful Dr. Mandy Swindon. And just the amount of knowledge she had about females and female athletes and their hormones how to properly test things, all of this stuff was just like totally foreign to me. And she was able to educate me and get me up to speed on things. And I have lots of stories of success from working with her. So I'm so honored to have you here. Can you tell us a little bit about what got you interested in being a naturopath and why the focus on female hormones and athletes? Yeah, I would love to share. So I guess the journey started when I was in high school. For me, I wanted to be a doctor. I didn't even know naturopathic medicine was a thing. And so I just started taking the steps to becoming a conventional medical doctor. I wanted to be a family physician. I did an undergrad degree and I was taking all the necessary courses. I wrote the MCAT to trying to do like extra things as well to prepare myself and there was a point in that journey, I was working for a thoracic surgeon. So thoracic surgery, um, that's a surgeon who works on like vascular issues. So like clogging of arteries, stuff like that. And my job working for this doctor was doing Doppler ultrasounds. And that is where we're basically calculating the percentage of cloggage of arteries. And so what we would do is just monitor patients to see how clogged their arteries were and not intervene until they were a certain percent clogged, which was so messed up to me. <laughs> like why, like this is a very lifestyle related condition. You know, like we know these people need to quit smoking. They need to exercise. They need to eat better. And I understand that's easier said than done, which is why we need to spend more time with them. And maybe like refer to other health professionals for help with that. But why are we just waiting for them to be so diseased and then doing like putting in a stent, like doing something pretty invasive. And then the doctor I worked for, he was awesome. Like he was very, put a lot of effort into his own health, but I think it, he just was so stuck in the system. So in Canada, medical doctors are, are pretty much told how to practice and, and everything is, is protocol based um, and they, they have to spend only five minutes, like five to seven minutes with their patients if they um, want to make any sort of money or like just to see the number of patients that are needed for them to see. And I looked at his schedule one day and it was literally five minute time slots, like nine o'clock, nine to five, nine, 10. I'm like, what, how, like, how can you accomplish anything in a five minute visit? Like it just, it just blew my mind. And that was really eye opening for me. And, and I, just thought to myself, like, do I really want to 
put all this time and energy and money into working for this system that I really believe is backwards so that that I just I don't believe in and not that there's not a time and place for conventional medicine there certainly is but from a like family medicine perspective I I was like oh I I don't I want to do something else like I still really want to work in medicine like the human body fascinates me but what about using nutrition and like there's all these other more natural modalities that are very effective and evidence-based despite popular belief. And so I still didn't know that naturopathic medicine was a thing at this point. And I just, I remember going home like that day after seeing the doctor's schedule and, and just Google searching things like natural medicine or, and, and things like that. And I came across the Canadian College of Naturopathic Medicine website, which is the school that I ended up going to. And it just was describing the principles of naturopathic medicine and, and what the school is about. And I, I just thought like, yes, like this is how medicine should be. Like this just makes so much sense, at least primary care. Like, like I said, there's, there's obviously a time and a place for other medicines, but why not start with lifestyle? Like if you can treat something naturally, why wouldn't you do that first? And so that's when I changed my career goals and the rest is kind of history. I went to CCNM in Toronto, moved out to Alberta and along in those four years of medical school, I learned so much more about naturopathy. Like it, it totally blew my mind. It's so much bigger than I ever imagined it would be. And as far as women's health, I I didn't really focus my, that was never my goal. I wanted to work with athletes and I still do work with athletes. Um, and even in my intern year, I did a sports medicine focus shift. There was an option to do a women's health focus shift. I didn't, I didn't choose that. I did sports medicine and I think it just kind of women's health sort of found me because it's an area of medicine that is really lacking. Like we know a lot of research is done on males and we think it's great that this research is done on humans, but we don't realize how different women are physiologically than men. And a lot of that research just doesn't, or therapies just don't work the same in women. And that frustrated me. And so I just, <laughs> and I just kept seeing a lot of women with period problems and even even like high level athletes like they're supposedly so healthy but then their hormones are a mess and so that's when I started to just like really dive into women's health and and learned learned more about it beyond the scope of or beyond the education I received in in school this is so amazing and you're the reason why I understand to the depth that I understand about how my hormones can affect my training and how my hormones can affect my eating patterns and my sleep patterns. And can you speak a little bit more about that? Because that was the, that was the catalyst for me and understanding why my periods were messed up because being an athlete, that was something that I faced. I faced like little to no hormone function. I had crazy periods all over the place. Like they'd come a week apart or two weeks apart or a month apart or whatever. And there was just no consistency. And I, like, I had trouble sleeping. I had trouble staying focused. And can, can you speak a little bit more about that? Cause it's such a big topic. And 
I, as you mentioned, it's just not talked about enough and there's just not enough mm-hmm. research. Yeah, I would say with, with athletes, it's largely undernourishment. And of course, it depends on the sport, but I think in general, in athletics, like females have really high standards of what their body should look like and even have expectations of themselves to look like an athlete. And in order to have healthy hormones, you might not necessarily look like an athlete. You might not be as ripped as you want to be. And that's because (laughs) we have to have a minimum body fat percentage to be able to make hormones. And, and then of course, like we have this monthly cycle that just isn't talked about enough. And even as females, we don't understand it. We're not taught to understand it in sex education. Like we're taught, like you're going to bleed once a month and it's going to suck. Here's some pads and tampons, the end. (laughs) Basically. And yeah, and there's so much more to know about our monthly cycle and when we understand what's going on with our hormones at each phase of our cycle we can fuel appropriately we can train appropriately i i use that train appropriately with caveat because i think you know there's lots of really high level athletes who are training really hard day in and day like they're not training with with their cycles and quotations, but they're fueling properly and they're recovering properly. And those two aspects are, are really what need to be manipulated over the course of the cycle to either get into hormone balance or maintain hormone balance so that we aren't like as, as athletes and, and not just athletes, but women in general, not losing our periods or having them come sporadically and, and not just having a regular period, but also ovulating every single month because oh, yeah. some women will, <laughs> will bleed every month, but that doesn't mean they're ovulating. And like, that really is the key to hormone balance. That's how we make progesterone and have that, that balance with, with all of our sex hormones. Oh my gosh. This is the most fascinating thing to me because as you know, my, my history, I compete in national level figure competitions. So I whittled my body down to below 10% body fat. I still had a period, but I was not ovulating. And I still, to this day, do not consistently ovulate. I actually ovulated for the first time last year for three months straight. And and then now I, now I'm back to not ovulating again. And I'm like, what the heck? Like, okay, this is really interesting because when I go to the doctor and they do a blood sample to check my hormones, my GP in Okotoks was great because she knew that I had to, to go on a certain specific day of my cycle in order to try and capture the hormones. But when she would receive mm-hmm. the results, she would say, oh yeah, you're in the normal range. Like there's nothing wrong with you. And I'm like, okay, I don't like you saying that because if there's nothing wrong with me, why do I still feel like crap? Why are my periods all over the place? Why are they inconsistent? Why am I having, you know, hair grown places that it shouldn't be on a female's body? You know, like what is going on? There's obviously an imbalance here. And so Mm -hmm. can you speak a little bit more about like the testing of hormones and like the scale of which they test those things? Yeah. Yeah. So you kind of alluded to um, a really important piece when it comes to hormone testing, and that's knowing where you are in your cycle. And that can be tricky if your cycles are all over the place. Um, And so 
we always need to take the lab work in conjunction with the patient's symptoms and what's normal based on the population. So those normal ranges that we, that we see, that we assess whether something is high or low, those are based on the whole population. They're not based on you. And of course, like most of us do fit under that bell curve. Some of us are outliers, like that's, you know, a whole other topic, but those ranges will change based on you, based on where you are in your cycle. And of course, um, putting all the pieces together is really important. So the, the biggest thing that uh, females can do is tracking their cycle because a lot of women don't know what day of their cycle they're in. They know like maybe they use a period tracking app and they input the days that they bleed and that's it. And there's so much more information that you can gather on yourself that is so assistive to to doctors, to, to any healthcare uh, professional that you're working with. Like you can go, it's just very empowering. So you can go to your doctor and say, I'm not ovulating or my cycle is 45 days long. Like what, what's going on? What or it's this? been this many months since I've had a period. So a lot of my practice has become just educating women on how to track their cycle, what to look for and how to know if you're ovulating because many women don't, they just assume that they are, but they're not. So there are, I would say when it comes to testing, like that is step one track your cycle, you know your cycle. And then if we do need to do testing, like blood testing can be, is, is probably the best option. And it's, it's the easiest. It's the one we have the most research for. If we need to do fancier tests, we could, but usually we can find the answers we need doing blood testing. Sometimes two requisitions are needed. So maybe we want to test some hormones in the follicular phase, and then we want to test others in the luteal phase. So that post ovulation to see, in fact, if you ovulated and how well you ovulated because we don't just want to ovulate either. Like we want to ovulate well. We want the best for your hormones. <laughs> I, I love that you reiterated that. And can you speak a little bit more about the difference between the follicular and the luteal phases of a woman's cycle? Yeah, for sure. So sometimes we divide the, uh, the monthly cycle just into two phases, follicular and luteal. Sometimes we divide it into four phases. I like four phases. I like being more specific. So the menstrual phase would be phase one. That one's easy to know because that's when you bleed. That's when you have your period. After the menstrual phase, we move into the follicular phase. And sometimes the menstrual phase can be included in the follicular phase. So that's how, hopefully that's not too confusing, but that's how it can be either considered two phases or four phases. Um, so the follicular phase is where we are building a follicle. How convenient yeah. the name. <laughs> and so the, I mean, as I mentioned, the whole goal of our cycle is to produce an egg to ovulate because our body wants us to have a baby. So the follicular phase, we're building that follicle and estrogen is slowly rising and it kind of accumulates and we get other hormone surges, LH or luteinizing hormone, FSH, follicular stimulating hormone to release the egg from the ovary. And that phase is ovulation, which is a really short phase and can be included again in the follicular phase, depending on if you're dividing into two or four phases. So ovulation is the shortest phase. It's only 24 hours, maybe 48. If you happen to ovulate twice in a row, that's rare. And then after ovulation, 
is the luteal phase, which is the longest phase. So luteal phase is from post-ovulation until the day before your next period. And that is where after we ovulate, we will produce progesterone. And so progesterone is highest in the luteal phase. It's the dominant hormone of that phase. And estrogen is also decently high in that phase as well. So we call the luteal phase the high hormone phase. And that's typically where women will get kind of crazy symptoms or just feel maybe not like themselves. And it's during that phase, but all of that can be not manipulated, it's not the right word, but treated in the sense that you're not feeling these crazy ups and downs over the course of a month. But those are the four phases, menstrual, follicular, ovulatory, and luteal. And, or if we're just talking about two phases and we just divide it into follicular and luteal. And so some research just, just talks about that follicular and luteal. Thank you for clarifying that. Can you speak a little bit about training for those who are athletes, those who like to weight train and keep fit? How, what is the best way to train based off of your cycle if you are actively tracking? Okay, so yeah, I'll back up a little bit and just talk briefly about tracking because as I mentioned, a lot of women don't know how to do that. So it doesn't just involve knowing when you're on your period. There's other signs and symptoms that you can can and should monitor to know when you're in each phase. So menstrual, easy to know, as we mentioned, follicular, also pretty easy to know because it comes right after the menstrual phase. And there's two main symptoms that I recommend tracking, and that's your basal body temperature and your cervical fluid. So basal body temperature is just your waking temperature, the temperature when you first wake up in the morning. It's Again, like it's pretty easy to do. Use an oral thermometer, stick it under your tongue before you open your eyes, just keep it on your bedside table. Your temperature will be lower in the first half of your cycle. So during menstrual follicular ovulatory phases, after ovulation, it will rise. So your basal metabolic rate increases and as does your temperature. And so when you see that rise in temperature, that confirms that you ovulated. Your cervical fluid will change throughout the cycle, and that's a, a really empowering thing to monitor as well, so that you don't, for some reason, think you're having an infection every month based on your <laughs> fluid changes. It is normal for your cervical fluid to change over the course of a month. Of course, it will be blood when you're on your menstrual phase, usually it will like dry up and become kind of like sticky in the follicular phase. As you approach ovulation, it becomes, it, there's a lot more volume. It becomes a lot more like a lubricative feeling. Egg white consistency is what we call it when you are ovulating. And mm -hmm. so when you cross check it with the temperature tracking, you can, as I mentioned, confirm ovulation and over the course of a few months of getting to know your cycle, know when you're ovulating and when you move from the follicular to the luteal phase. And that's really key for any female, but especially for athletes, because training is gonna feel different on based on the phases of your cycle. And there's considerations that you need to implement to recover properly. So as I mentioned, your basal metabolic rate is going to go up in the luteal phase. And so you might feel warmer <laughs> when you're, when you're training. Females in general are not as good at regulating their temperature compared to men as I'm sure <laughs> in heterosexual relationships, no, like yeah. husbands 
so warm, I'm yeah. freezing or opposite. Yeah. yeah. So we, when we're training and we tend to, it takes us longer for blood flow to be directed certain directions. So post-workout, our blood flow will go to our skin to try to regulate our temperature. Whereas males, the blood flow continues to go to their muscles and they recover faster. But females, we have to implement things to redirect the blood flow to our muscles so that we are repairing that tissue. And so there's things that we can do like ice baths, cooling down is really, really important for us. So doing something like a light bike ride after a workout, just to continue directing blood flow to our muscles. In that luteal phase, because our basal metabolic rate is up, we are going to feel hungrier and we're going to need more fuel. We don't need a ton more, only, you know, 200 to 500 calories. So it's not like a lot, but that can be significant. And when we realize that, when we know when we're in our luteal phase and we are feeling hangry, we can be like, oh yeah, I'm in my luteal phase. I probably should eat more carbs. And I'm specific, I'm saying carbs on purpose because that's, that's usually what we're going to need more of in the, in the luteal phase. I mean, protein and fat is, is important throughout the cycle. We need to manage our blood sugar a bit better um, or, or just put a little bit more effort into it in the luteal phase so that we're not craving chocolate or these really high like super palatable foods like chips and cookies in the luteal phase because that's what our hormones will tell us to eat in yeah, that time totally. if we're not taking care like managing our blood sugar during that time. I can totally attest to the whole luteal phase being hungrier I always know when I'm anywhere from seven to nine days away from my period by how hungry I get all of a sudden I just become <laughs> ravenous and I'm like, Oh, okay. Yep. I know I'm in that phase of my cycle. Okay. I need to, you know, like eat an extra little bit of whatever rice or potatoes or whatever. And I need to take more time when I'm, when I'm training and whatnot. So can you speak a little bit more about which phases are better for weight and resistance training versus which should be more cardio focused. Can you speak a little bit about that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So the, the research on this is growing. So we have, I feel we have enough studies to make recommendations, but as always getting to know your body is the key. So we know that estrogen is an anabolic hormone. It helps women build muscle. Estrogen is a dominant hormone of the first half of our cycle, the follicular phase. And so strength training, we, we get more bang for our buck with strength training in that time when estrogen is unopposed. As I mentioned, estrogen is higher in the luteal phase as well, but progesterone is higher and progesterone is a catalytic hormone. It can break down muscle. So it's not in our best interest to be strength training every single day in our luteal phase. So based on the few studies, so there's been, I'll, I'll quote one, because I, for some reason, I don't know, I don't remember the author's name off the top of my head, but I remember how they, they divided the, the groups. And so there was one who did strength training for five days in their follicular phase, and then only one day in their luteal phase. Another group just did three days a week, the whole cycle. And then the third group did one day a week during the follicular phase and five days during the luteal phase. And what the results showed was the 
the follicular phase heavy training group did much better. So they put on more lean mass, they gained more strength compared to both other groups, which is crazy. So even the group that did three days of strength training through the whole cycle did not do as well as the follicular phase group who, who biased their strength training to during like menstrual follicular ovulatory. And it makes sense from a hormone perspective. So we're utilizing, we're making the most of estrogen being the dominant hormone of that first half of our cycle because it's anabolic. We recover better. We don't need as much rest in between our sets in that first half of our cycle. Whereas in the luteal phase, when progesterone is the dominant hormone and we know that it's catabolic, if we're, if we're strength training more than, I mean, I think you can do more than one day a week, but if you're doing like going heavy, like five days a week and you have this catabolic hormone and then training hard is also catabolic, you're just creating too much breakdown. And that can be okay. If you, let's say you're a professional athlete, like you're not going to not train the way you need to for your athletic goals, but then usually you don't also have a full-time job and you can take the time you need to recover in bet- properly in between your sessions and, you know, eat enough protein, have electrolytes, have a good like cool down session. So there's ways I, I, I don't want to, you know, make the point or, or lead people to believe that your cycle is a hindrance to your athletic goals or that you you know, I want people, women to know that they can do anything at any point of their cycle. There's just, you know, things about recovery that need to be implemented in order to make the most out of it. But from a hormone perspective and and just kind of based on the few studies that we have for strength training with the cycle, if you want to really utilize estrogen and you have a regular cycle and you know when you ovulate, then strength train, bias it towards the first half and then do more technique work, more like, I don't, not even endurance necessarily, but yeah, technique work in the luteal phase. I really appreciate you sharing about that because I always feel stronger, like the second or third day into my period. I'm like, oh man, I just need to go lift something heavy. And I, I, that's when I do my heaviest lifting is that first week, that bleed period, and then into mm. the, the rest of the follicular phase. And then after that, I'm kind of like, eh, I'm kind of tired. Like I just need to, you know, slow down, settle down. And I, like, I didn't even know how to track that in depth of my cycle. So I really appreciate you expanding on that and elaborating on that because I, Like I think about the things like the cervical fluid changes. I think about that and I'm watching for that to be an active sign, but I didn't even think to check and track my basal temperature. Yeah. Basal body temperature is so underrated. It can tell us so much about your hormones, not just your sex hormones. I use this in some of my male patients as well to give me information about their thyroid and adrenal glands. So it can do the same the same for women. Wow. Yeah. It's like, you know, buy a $10 thermometer from shoppers. You can. So I will, I will add that a basal body temperature thermometer is different than a regular oral thermometer in that it gives you two numbers after the decimal place. So a little bit more detail because that shift in basal body temperature isn't going to be crazy drastic. Like it might take you a few cycles to see it. And for some women, like after they ovulate their temperature, like it's, it's just like a big jump suddenly, whereas some women it's more like a staircase, like they gradually increase their basal body temperature. So again, like it takes a while for you to get to know your cycle, but it 
it's such a simple thing that can give you a lot of information about your hormones. And then you can see too, like how much is like, is this consistent? Am I seeing this pattern of low temperature, higher temperature or, and, and like how many days is my luteal phase? Am I ovulating and am I ovulating well? So tracking your temperature can give you that information and then tracking your cervical fluid can tell you what's going on. It's, it's very correlated with estrogen. So it can tell you what's going on there. Um, and of course there's like variations of normal. It's a pretty wide, <laughs> a wide topic. If any of your listeners want more information about cycle tracking, I'd recommend the book taking charge of your fertility. That one goes into a ton of detail about tracking. Oh, awesome. That's, that's a really great recommendation. Thank you. Mm-hmm. Oh my welcome. gosh. The, I'm like just bursting at the seams right now. I have so many <laughs> questions and I just want you to know how much I appreciate you spending this time sharing this information and educating us. So can you speak a little bit more? I think it's really important to sort of elaborate more deeply on the testing portion that can happen. You mentioned that the blood test is usually very accurate and it can be very insightful and it's the most studied, but can you talk a little bit more about some of the other tests that are available and how effective they can also be in supporting that blood blood work? Yes. So my, I mean, I've, I'm always learning. So I think my opinions of these and knowledge of these tests have changed over <laughs> over the past couple of years, since I saw you last, at least. So other ways to test hormones, you can test through saliva, you can test through urine. And they're, these are, we, I, I don't know, I call them fancier tests, because they are fancy. <laughs> and they, because saliva and urine is more saliva, I guess, is more active tissue than blood. Like our our body very tightly regulates what goes on in our blood. So sometimes hormones can show up as normal in the blood, but then they're not normal around the ovary or in our saliva or how we're metabolizing them, which would show up in the urine, isn't, isn't ideal. So using these fancier tests can be useful to determine those things. Or in the case of doing testing your hormones over the course of the whole month. So we know that female hormones go cycle on this pattern every month, or at least they should. And yeah, I guess we could test blood over the course of a month, but that would be a lot of work and no one really has time to do that. So a saliva test can be really useful there. If we want to, if we want to see what's going on over the, over the whole month, I think that may have been the one you yeah, and I did. I did the, uh, yeah. I and did the saliva a, test with you. Yeah, yeah. So that one, I mean, there's different saliva tests, but if we're doing a month long, it would just involve spitting into a tube every morning, every three days. Like, so starting when you have your period, I mean, it gives us a nice chart and actual numbers of, of how like estrogen, progesterone, testosterone, cortisol are being secreted over the course of a month. And these hormones are all connected. Um, and then we can just see where, where the weak spots are essentially. But yeah, I, I think that's not the, that test isn't the top of my list. I think there's a lot we can do with blood and tracking, but it's nice to have those in the toolbox in case we need them. And the reason why we did that saliva test, the reason why I went through the saliva test process was because I didn't feel normal, even though my blood work was showing that I was in the normal range. That range was like, what, 60 to 120 for some count, whatever they were counting, I don't even know. 
And my doctor's <laughs> like, oh no, that that's normal. And I'm like, okay, but what if that's not normal for me? Just because mm-hmm. I'm registering on your scale doesn't mean that that's actually normal for me. So can you speak a little bit more about actually listening to your body versus listening to what a test result tells you? Yeah. So these normal ranges, I mean, hormones, when we're analyzing blood work, it's, it is a lot of work. So we don't just want to look at like one hormone and if it's in the normal range or not, we want to look at the ratios of hormones. That's really key. So what is the ratio of estrogen progesterone on that day of your cycle that you got your blood work? Is that where we want to see it? Because it can be, that ratio could be normal if it's, if you had your blood taken in the luteal phase, or it could be abnormal if it was taken in the follicular phase. And then the other hormones we're testing, usually for female hormones, we would want to touch L- test LH and FSH as well. Again, like timing can play a role there. If we, if we look at all of the hormones, at least those four in a line, we should be able to tell like where you are in your cycle, like the doctor should be. But then of course, if you had been tracking and we take it in conjunction with like your cervical fluid and your basal body temperature at that time, that just gives us so much more answers. And then of course your symptoms. So that's, that gives us the whole picture and allows us to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But there's, there's a lot of conditions out there, like women's health conditions that are really tricky to diagnose. So PCOS is one of them, like hirsutism, mm-hmm. so like excess body hair, or facial hair. That's like a, a big complaint along with acne, like blood sugar dysregulation. And the symptoms can vary. Like it's called a syndrome for a reason. And depending on where you are in the progression of the disease or in the healing, you may or may not have those symptoms and you may or may not have abnormal labs. So that one's a tricky one. And that's just one example of like how you need to know your body and be like, just stand up for yourself. Like, no, I know something's going on and finding like not giving up on finding a practitioner that's going to like take your symptoms seriously and, and really like go to the drawing board and figure out what's going on. Like just because something sounds like PCOS doesn't mean that it is. Probably it is because it's a really common, it's a really Mm -hmm. common syndrome, Um, but there's other, there's other ones that could present with similar symptoms. And, and then when we, when we look at the blood work, we look at your symptoms, put it all together. Usually we can figure out a diagnosis and then move forward with treatment. So basically don't go Googling stuff and (laughs) self-diagnosing. No, I mean, I understand going to do that. And and like, that's maybe that's helpful, you know, I, like it'd be better if you're searching on Google scholar, but I know that <laughs> not, not everyone has the, the education to be able to like nitpick research articles and it's time consuming. It's so time consuming. And so that's where a professional can be, can be helpful. But I, yeah, I'm not against Google searching things. <laughs> like sometimes there, there is, this is the thing with the internet and social media. Like there is a lot of truth and there's a lot of bullshit. Yeah. So how are you su- supposed to know which is truth and which, and what isn't? It can be this really big, confusing, confusing thing. So I think when you're reading blogs or reading stuff on social media, like ask yourself, like, does this apply to me? 
Like, does this make sense? Does this apply to me? What are, what are the person's credentials that are saying this? Like what mm-hmm. gives them the right to give this advice? And of course, take everything with a grain of salt. I also love that you mentioned that because there are a lot of people who are paid to influence certain opinions and That is how you know, just like you mentioned, what are their credentials? And that is something that I often find myself seeking when I do seek practitioners or specialists. I'm like, okay, well, what are your credentials? What is your track record like? How have you helped people with these issues? Because I don't want to just seek someone out just because I feel like they've answered one of my questions. I have more than one question and I want all of them answered, (laughs) especially when Mm -hmm. it comes to hormones, especially when it comes to fertility, especially when it comes to making sure that my body is optimally performing. And I think that that's the word we want our bodies to be optimally performing, not just subpar performance. (laughs) We want optimal performance from our bodies. Exactly. Yeah. And as women, like we the world is not set up for us to perform at our best. Like we have, you know, we have this monthly hormone cycle and we're better at certain tasks at certain times of the month. And like men have a daily hormone cycle Mm -hmm. and the world is set up for doing specific tasks at certain times of the day. And it really is in favor of them performing at their best but not so much us. We have a daily hormone cycle as well. We also have this monthly one that is arguably more powerful. Yeah, I would agree. As we close, Dr. Mandy, do you have any final words of wisdom that you would like to share with our listeners and viewers today? Track your cycle. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like word of wisdom. Start with buying a basal body temperature thermometer. Make sure it gives you two numbers after the decimal place. Take your temperature every morning. It's going to give you so much information about your hormones. If you want to learn more, that book I recommended. I'm also in the in the process of making just like a free kind of five video course for women on on how to track their cycle, how to track cervical fluid. But that is one of the most empowering things you can do as a, a female of reproductive age. Awesome. And do you have a software or an app that you recommend for tracking the cycle? Or do you just recommend people put it in the notes on their phone or in a journal? Yeah, there's a few apps that I like. If you're an athlete, Fitter Woman is is a good one. Flow, F-L-O, is that's a paid one. But that one's really cool because you can input your partner's email address and it will email him or her like things like, oh, you should do this for your partner (laughs) at this phase of their cycle. So make sure you... Buy her, flowers, or, yeah, like, buy her flowers yeah. don't piss her off yeah. <laughs> yeah so that one's really cool with apps you do have to be careful like some of them are more credible than others but many of them will have like a temperature inputting area and then you can input like cervical fluid if you want to get really fancy so I have one of these devices it's called a daisy. It measures your, so you do like same thing, tracking your temperature under the tongue every morning, but it also measures your salivary hormones. And so it will give you like a green light when you're not fertile, a yellow light when it's like, "Mm, you could be fertile and then red when you are fertile and that it comes with an app that links to like Bluetooth connects to your phone. So that's what I have because I'm super fancy with the cycle tracking, (laughs) Um, but but that's, you know, that's more of an investment. Yeah. So I think just like regular basal body temperature thermometer, one of those apps I mentioned, that's a really good place to start. Awesome. And how can people reach out to you? How can they connect with you? 
Instagram's probably where I am most active and a good starting place. So my handle is Dr. Mandy underscore ND. And that, yeah, that's where I post the most frequently, depending on how much my baby is letting me be on my phone. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and that will take you to my website and all the other places. Wonderful. Well, it has been amazing having you. I am always just so floored to get to connect with you. And thank you for sharing your beautiful, innate wisdom with us. Thank you for being here. And I look forward to the next time. Thank you so much for having me. This is so fun. And it went by so fast. Thank you so much for tuning in. Please don't forget to like and subscribe. Thank you.